Hey, Energy Gang listeners, uh, we're off this week during GTM's Solar Summit in Phoenix. And if you're there, we'll see you there. Looking forward to it. But for those who aren't, we have a special show for you. Many weeks back, I mentioned we were producing a new podcast debate series called Verses. And we recorded a pilot shortly after that. Now, I might have been a bit premature in announcing the show, because after an internal review, we decided to go a different route. And you'll get more details on that in the coming months. But it didn't seem right to leave our pilot filed away on my computer. So this week, in place of our regular Energy Gang podcast, you'll get to listen to our first recorded episode where we debate the plausibility of getting 100% renewable energy. The format itself isn't totally dead. This week at our solar summit, Shale Khan and I will be hosting a similar debate on utility ownership of solar, which we will publish on the podcast feed. Even though we're not creating an entirely new show on this premise, we'd still love to hear your feedback. Feel free to leave comments below the show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast or shoot an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Before we get into the debate, I want to remind everyone about our sponsor, Renasola, which is a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. And the company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local representative, visit renesola.us, that's R-E-N-E-S-O-L-A dot U-S, or you can give them a call at 415-570-2647. And now, on to the show. Hey, Shale, do me a favor. Name every type of renewable energy. Okay, I think that should be pretty easy. Uh, solar, wind, hydropower, biomass, tidal power, wave power, geothermal, nuclear, depending on your definition. Uh, am I missing any? Do I yeah, get a prize? You definitely don't get nuclear. <laughs> but I don't have a list in front of me. That sounds pretty good, but hardly prize-worthy. You should set your standards a little bit higher. Uh, next question. How much electricity do you think renewables provide in the U.S. today in aggregate? In aggregate, uh, I guess it depends what renewables you're including, but let's say 12%. You're close. You're a little bit under. It's just over 14%, including hydro, and excluding hydro, it's about 7%. And where do you think that number will stand by the middle of the century? The middle of the century, 2050, that's a ways out. Uh, let's say 50%. You are an analyst. Perfect middle-of-the-road answer there. Now, here's a key question. This is what I'm leading up to. Do you think it's possible that renewables will hit 100% by then? 100% by 2050. That's right. Uh, you know, I'm skeptical. Um, I think a lot of people have, you know, really smart people have put a lot of thought and effort into proving that it's possible that we could get to 100% renewables by around 2050, in some cases a little bit later. But, you know, given the complexity of phasing out all of our existing power plants and the sort of bigger question of whether we should even take away all types of fossil fuel generation. I don't know. I think like uh, the governor of my own great state of Wisconsin, I'm going to punt on that question. <laughs> all right. Well, that's okay for today. You're allowed to punt because we've got two experts here who we can punt the question over to. And Shale, you want to uh, introduce yourself and tell people what we're doing here? Sure. You're listening to Versus, Energy Debates from Green Tech Media. I'm Shale Khan, the Senior Vice President of GTM Research and one of the co-hosts of this new podcast. And I'm Stephen Lacey, a Senior Editor at Green Tech Media, also a co-host of this show. This week, in our very first debate on Versus, we are swinging for the fences. We will ask our contestants, can America go 100% renewable? 
We have two very smart people waiting in the wings, ready to debate this point. Let's meet them now, and we'll go over the rules of engagement. Firstly, here's the motion. America can and should be powered by 100% renewable energy by 2050. Arguing for the motion is Mark Jacobson. He is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for being here. Oh, thank you very much, Stephen. So you've been uh, creating renewable energy scenarios for many years using a model that you've developed over the last couple of decades. So I'm actually kind of curious, uh, beyond energy, is there anything odd or unique that you've modeled? Well, actually, most of my history, I've been modeling the impacts of pollution emissions on climate and air quality and health. So looking at feedbacks between, for example, diesel exhaust and uh, global warming, and also calculating how many people die from air pollution worldwide um, from all the different sources. So you ha- you've always been in the energy and environmental space. You haven't like modeled banana futures or <laughs> winning NBA teams. No, my history has been looking at these problems, air pollution and global warming, and then in the last 15 years uh, trying to find solutions to them, uh, efficient, clean, and, and renewable energy solutions to them. Well, glad to have you on the show. And let's go over to our next contestant. Arguing against the motion is Eric Dennis, a senior fellow at the Center for Industrial Progress. With a uh, PhD in physics, previously focused on quantum computers, Eric is no stranger to models either. Welcome to the show. Thanks. And uh, you currently work in quantitative finance along with your work in energy, and I know you've worked on uh, derivatives on Wall Street. So, you know, any inside scoop on things in the works that uh, might threaten the global financial system again? Sorry, uh, no bomb to drop on your show. (laughs) So how did you get into energy? Uh, just generally an interest in technology and an interest in, you know, the, the future of the country and, if, uh, and the world for that matter. If, uh, if we do great things and can do great things with new sources of energy, then, you know, that's certainly interesting to me. Well, these two men are very, very intelligent and they've been working on these issues for some time. So we're really pleased to have them. And let's go over the rules of the debate here. We are going to give Mark three minutes to give his opening statement in favor of the motion. And that motion, again, is America can and should be powered by 100% renewable energy by 2050. And then Eric will get three minutes to cross-examine Mark. He can ask him anything he likes, and Mark will get a chance to respond. After that, Eric will get three minutes to make his statement against the motion, and then Mark will get his three minutes to cross-examine Eric. Then Shale Khan will come in. We're going to have this 10-minute question-and-answer session led by him, Uh, He can ask anything he wants. Hopefully, he'll try to pick apart some of the arguments and find some areas that haven't been answered yet. And then we're going to finish with four minutes of closing statements uh, for each debater. I will be keeping time here, and I'll warn each contestant when they have 30 seconds left and when the floor time is up. So, Mark, I'm going to hand it over to you. You get your three minutes, and you can start us off. Okay, so uh, I believe that America can and should be powered by 100% renewable energy, not only for electric power, but also all sectors, that's electricity, transportation, uh, heating and cooling in industry. And this, the, the electric, in fact, we would first have to convert uh, all the energy systems to all the energy sectors to electricity. And 
and so, in, for example, transportation, we'd run on electric cars uh, with some hydrogen fuel cell cars where the hydrogen is produced by electricity. For heating and cooling, we'd use air source and ground source and water source heat pumps, which can be run in reverse for air conditioning and some electric resistance heating. And for uh, industry, we'd have all sorts of electric high temperature processes and, and some hydrogen as well. And this would not only reduce p- power demand, we would reduce, but because of the efficiency of electricity, we'd reduce power demand in the United States by about 37% on average, uh, with some states getting reductions of about 44% and others maybe 32%. And that's because if it, electricity is so much more efficient than internal combustion. And that only accounts for maybe about 5 or 6 percentage points of those um, reductions are due to end-use energy efficiency improvements, which could be even greater uh, by 2050. But, well, first of all, why do we want to do this? Uh, because, well, worldwide, air pollution kills uh, between 4 and 7 million people prematurely each year. And in the United States, it's between 50 and 100,000. In the United States, that costs about 3.2% of the GDP of the United States just to air pollution mortality. And also hundreds of thousands of more people are uh, get injured from air pollution. It's morbidity. Uh, and that and then global warming costs are even are gr- growing, and by 2050 will ex- even exceed air pollution costs. And between the two of them, that is equivalent to about five cents per kilowatt hour in electricity prices that are being are hidden and that society is paying that the fossil fuel and solid biofuel industries are not paying uh, for their air pollution and climate problems. So, is it technically and economically feasible? Yes, it is technically economically feasible. Not. Um, in fact, we've modeled out each state. We've made plans, uh, transition plans for each state in the United States, all 50 states. And we've then did modeling of combining the wind, water, and solar energy resources that w- would be required with storage uh, to, and then matching that storage and the, uh, the supply of wind, water, and solar uh, to match the load on the grid in 2050, and we find that we can find a 100% reliable grid in the United States at low cost by 2050. You got by 30 low seconds. Cost, yeah, by low cost, that's about uh, about 10.3 cents per kilowatt hour would be the cost of a 100% renewable grid in the U.S. Uh, powering all sectors for all purposes, and that would compare with the levelized cost of uh, conventional fuels in 2050 of about between 11 and 12 cents a kilowatt hour. But if you add another 5 cents a kilowatt hour of their, their hidden externality or health and climate costs, uh, the fossil fuels would be about 17 cents per kilowatt hour compared to about 10.5 cents a kilowatt hour uh, for wind, water, and solar for all purposes. And converting would eliminate all this air pollution and climate problems. All right, and that's the three minutes. Thanks very much, Mark. Eric, over to you. You have the floor, and uh, you can ask Mark anything you like. All right. Uh, So for 40 years, we've heard solar and wind advocates make pretty staggering theoretical proposals for a dramatic shift away from fossil fuels, and none have ever really been implemented. How does this square with real tests like in Germany, which is showing how tough the intermittency problem is in practice, where you have clouds and wind variability causing huge hour-by-hour swings in wind and solar production? Have you seen the data making it clear that the extreme flexibility of its fossil fuel power plants is the only thing saving Germany from rolling blackouts? Well, uh, yes, that's not an issue. Um, first of all, we're talking about uh, converting all sectors in 2050, so we're not talking about today's grid or today's technology. So in 2050, all the energy sectors will be transformed. And in our proposal, we would use low-cost storage 
uh, to levelize the grid. And so we don't need, we found, in fact, from our modeling in 2050, we need zero natural gas for backup. Uh, we need zero biofuels. And we can, I, can I cut you off here just for a second? Sure. So what, what I'm really interested in is getting at the real data, because Germany's trying to do this, right? They're, they're ramping up a whole bunch of, uh, of wind and solar production. And if we look at the actual data from 2013, take January 1st, you see their wind generation goes from uh, 19 gigawatts to 9 gigawatts in that, within that one day. Take another day, July 1st, right in the middle of the year, they go from 6 gigawatts to 1 gigawatt on a nominal capacity of 33 gigawatts. So despite $100 billion in subsidies, you still have these huge swings that your proposal doesn't really even contemplate. So again... Oh, yes. No, it does contemplate all these swings. In fact, we, as I said, we've modeled the entire United States with the same types of swings, and we find no problem. In fact, Germany does not find blackouts, and neither does Denmark, which on some days in like well, December. Well, that's because has, they have fossil fuels, right? No, it's a lot of it's hydroelectricity from Nor Norway and Sweden, but they do have fossil fuels right now. But that's the current situation. But that does not mean that we need fossil fuels in the future because we can not only use the high. Especially in Northern Europe, there's plenty of hydro in the Scandinavian but now, countries. Let's let's go let's go to your actual analysis because your actual numbers, when you claim to look at uh, you know hour by hour changes in wind and solar production, what you really have in your papers, from what I've seen, are these monthly averages. You don't actually look at data for uh, actually look at data for individual days. Doesn't that ignore the real intermittency problem? Well, first, that's not correct. Actually, we did do a paper for California where we looked at every hour for two years and we found 100% reliability of the 2005 and 2006 Right, but what you're sector. computing, what you're looking at is the monthly averages of each hour, not individual days of data. Isn't that correct? No, no. no and we've got correct. just a few seconds left, so Mark, I'll give you a few seconds I'll, to respond. I'll say that, no, we actually, in fact, and we have a new study that hasn't been published yet where we did the entire United States and we, we modeled the winds every 30 seconds and the solar every 30 seconds and we combined that with hourly load data and we can match everything exactly for a six-year period uh, over the whole U.S. So we do not think this is a problem that you're pointing out. All right, Eric, now you've got three minutes and uh, we will give you the floor, so go for it. Okay. What I'm going to do is uh, really name my starting point, which for a big problem like this is maximizing human well-being. And we've got to look at all the evidence and weigh all the risks and, and all the benefits and really distinguish between real evidence, real data, and mere speculation. And my fundamental position here is no subsidies and no bans for any energy technology. I just want honest competition. Uh, and from the standpoint, I think it's clear as gas that unsubsidized fossil fuel easily outcompetes unsubsidized wind and solar. Um, and what I really want is for people to decide for themselves with their own dollars what form of energy they want to use, not academics and politicians with other people's money. And, you know, abstract theoretical models are nice, but we're talking about scrapping and replacing a $5 trillion sector of the global economy that touches every machine, every piece of technology in our lives. And we have to be careful when listening to Professor J Jacobson's theoretical proposal because it's easy to get trapped in the imaginary world of the model. Actual evidence over 150 years of fossil fuel use all over the world uh, suggests one thing, and that's that every big picture measure of human well-being, life expectancy, infant mortality, calories consumed, sanitation, all surging upward as fossil fuel usage surges. Uh, you know, and let's talk about the impact of fossil fuels on our climate, because that's certainly very important. 
Climate-related deaths are down 90% from what they were in the 1930s, precisely because all of the technology, all the heating, air conditioning, agricultural, and medical technology, uh, which are fed by fossil fuels. So the question is, do we want to scuttle this massive factual progress that we've had? Do we want to outlaw the farmer's combine, outlaw the trucks that deliver our food, outlaw airplanes, unless somehow we can replace the entire transportation, uh, transportation infrastructure with hyper-expensive, horsepower-deficient battery technology or hydrogen fuel cell vehicles that have been under study for decades and number in the mere hundreds on roads today. And the real question is, who decides? Is it academics and politicians? Or is it the people who actually built the mining rigs, the power plants, and the, distribu uh, the distribution systems that power our lives? People who respond to what consumers want, not intellectual fads and campaign contributions. 30 seconds. The fact is there's one billion desperately poor people on this planet today that have zero electricity. And what they dream about is a refrigerator and maybe one day a washing machine. What they need is real power. So when it gets overcast, the fridges preserving their vaccines don't crap out. Forcing them to wait for wind and solar-based power grids will mean death and suffering. They need the best, the least expensive, the most reliable form of energy, and they need it now. Coal will let them live, live past 40. I say let them. Okay. So, Mark, uh, Eric, worried about the real-world implications of these models. You have three minutes to ask them anything you like. Okay, well, I have two major questions. Um, one, well, so Lazard is a reputed organization that looks at the cost of energy. They find that um, last year the unsubsidized levelized cost of wind energy is 3.7 cents per kilowatt hour in the United States, whereas gas, natural gas is 6 to 8 cents per kilowatt hour for conventional and peaking is about 16 to 18 cents a kilowatt hour. And utility-scale solar is also 6 to 8 cents a kilowatt hour unsubsidized. So the, they're, claim, they're stating that uh, wind is actually the cheapest form of electricity electric power today in the United States by a factor of two, and, and utility-scale solar is about the same as gas. So how do you argue that uh, gas is cheaper when we're not even haven't even talked about the um, health and climate costs due to gas versus wind and solar? Well, I think there's a much more fundamental question than is it cheaper in any given one theoretical analysis. The question is, is it plausible that it could actually provide the power that industrial society needs? And what I want to do is not look at models or not just look at models, I want to look at the places that actually try to do this, like Germany, and look at what they actually experience. And I think it's almost undeniable when you look at the real hour-to-hour -hour data in Germany that the, the power is fluctuating all over the place generated from something like wind technology. So uh, I, just don't, I don't think it's enough to, to kind of compare theoretical numbers in some model. I think we need to compare it to actual experience. Well, well, these costs are not theoretical. These are actual costs in the United States of actual uh, power purchase agreements. And but the idea, the idea that wind or solar could actually provide power for industrial civilization without fossil fuel backups, never done anywhere. Not one town in the world that I know of, at least. Maybe you can tell me. Um, not one town that I know of that's actually implemented 100% of a proposal like yours. Well, there has well, there are some are close in Iceland, um, but I would point out that like South Dakota and Iowa, for example, are already thirty percent wind on their entire grid. Well, but, it's it's a lot easier to be thirty percent of something when you average over an entire year, as opposed to being a hundred percent of something all the time. So when yeah. you look at the actual day to day data in Germany, 
what you see is at times, you know, wind generation can dip down to under, it can dip down to zero really, under half a gigawatt on a 33 gigawatt uh, nominal capacity. So it's easy to, when you, when you do averages over long periods of time, it's easy to get some average number that sounds reasonable, but the real problem is doing it reliably. Yeah, well, so I would point out that people used to say, well, you couldn't do more than 15% wind on the grid. And now you have like Denmark getting on certain days 56, 60%. And so people now are pushing up those limits. And so you're saying that, well, we shouldn't try to get to 100%. We shouldn't even try to get to well, you know, 40%. I think we, I think and we, we just should... have about 20 seconds left. So you have the last word, Eric. Okay, I think we should, quote unquote, try to do everything. What I'm, what I'm against is bans and subsidies. So let's let the wind guys, the solar guys, compete on a, on a free and open market, and let's see what happens. I really want the best technology to prevail. Hey, we're going to pause the debate here for a moment to recognize our sponsor, Renasola. I know we have a lot of smart solar installers who listen to this show. So put that intelligence to work and consider a bundled equipment solution from Renasola. Renasola manufactures and distributes solar panels, inverters, and racking systems. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing the company's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renasola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries. To find your local rep, go to renasola.us or call 415-570-570. Two six four seven, and now back to verses. So these gentlemen have had a chance to question each other, and it's time for our very own Inquisitor Shale Khan to jump in here and follow up on these arguments. And the ten minutes of questions begins now. Thank you, Stephen, and thanks both Mark and Eric. I think actually you've both made some really interesting, great points. Um, I, what I want to do is split this out. This question really has two parts, right? The question is. America can and should be powered entirely by renewable energy by 2050. So let's split the can and the should. I think the can is a technical question and the should is an economic question more than anything else. So I'll I'll ask each of you some questions on the technical side first and then we'll jump to the economic side. So on the technical side, in terms of uh, can, Eric, it seems to me based on what you're saying that your primary argument against whether it can happen is intermittency and uh, reliability of the grid. Is that accurate to say, or do you have any other reasons beyond intermittency that, that you think it's impossible technically? Oh, yeah, I would, say, I would say there are a huge number of reasons. Now, I'm trying to focus on ones that are clear and kind of easy to comprehend. But this plan, we have to understand, this is a plan which wants to transform a $5 trillion sector of the global economy. So that, that's I mean, an economic have, question. So what's right. the, the technical reason why you couldn't do it other than well, intermittent? Well, economics is technical. Are you saying if we spent 100% of world GDP, could we do it? Uh, sure. Uh, frankly, I don't even know the answer to that question. I suspect that the answer to that is even no um, because of the stability of the electrical grid. But um, I don't even think that's relevant. I think when we get to the realm where we're asking should we like triple, quadruple, quintuple the amount we spend on energy? It becomes ridiculous, and we just have to ask the the basic question, uh, which is which is given the experience we've had over history, what actually works? What do people actually want on the market? Um, what do 
uh, what do societies actually choose when they're free to choose? Yeah. So we'll come back to the economic question. We'll talk about uh, history as well. But I want I want to turn it to Mark because it does seem to me that from a, a technical standpoint, the biggest argument against 100% renewables on the electric grid, and it sounds like you're talking about full electrification anyway, is intermittency and reliability. And it, the, what I was picking up from your part of the conversation is that basically – um, storage is the answer in your mind. Is that right? And and to that end, within these models that you're creating, what kind of advancements are you assuming in energy storage technology? Yeah. Well, I should point out that you know people will. It's easy to try to argue against 100% renewable energy by just claiming that it can't be done because the intermittency is too great. But people who say this have never actually have no capability of actually uh, looking at this issue. I mean, they don't actually because the only way you can really look at the future is through modeling, and these people do not have models that are capable of looking at this issue. So you really need to model the intermittent wind and solar and be able to predict over time the variations on very short time scales, like seconds to minutes, and then also on the long time scales, and then match that with load. And we have done this for 100% renewable energy, and we find that it is technically and economically feasible to do. And so for somebody to then come and say, well, we can't be done when they have no model that can disprove this uh, is just bad science. And so I would like to say that it's very, it's very technically and economically feasible. Uh, right now, it's not being done. So that's the, a good argument against it is that, well, right now it's not 100%, so you know, we don't know what's going on in the future. But that doesn't mean we can't do it technically and economically. I would say the biggest problems are not technical or economic, they're social and political. It's people who are against it, mostly the people who have financial interest in the fossil fuel industry. I, I want to I wanna so, cut you off there, I mean, uh, because I, I, I'm not done talking about the technical piece of this. Sure. So, so I certainly you, you think that it's possible, um, but again, I don't think you really answered the question about storage, because presumably yeah. in, in any location where you are assuming 100% renewables, that in- includes some portion of storage. Is that right? Yes, but the storage is low-cost storage. So the types of storage we would be using, we don't, we don't even need battery storage. Battery is the most expensive type of storage. Well, except for in electric vehicles, which are, would just be, and we wouldn't be using that even back to the grid. It would just be for running electric vehicles. But for we'd break out the energy into thermal types of storage and electrical types of storage. So thermal types of storage, we would store in, in water, uh, in ice, in soil. These are all low, relatively low-cost types of storage that break out a lot of our demand. And then for electric power, the types of storage uh, would be um, mostly in uh, concentrated solar power with phase change material uh, for the storage where you can, then you can store solar at night and then generate electricity during the night. And also some existing hydroelectric, existing pumped hydro for electricity. And, but we'd have a different system in the future. We'd have some hydrogen. So we can, when we have extra wind, we can use that to produce hydrogen. Uh, when, when we have extra wind and solar, we can also dump that into soil storage for heating. Um, so there, that solves the problem of all the extra storage. And then when we don't have enough, then we use all these other types of electric power storage. Yeah, it, it strikes me that, you know, at the end of the day, that part of the assumptions is actually probably the biggest lift. I mean, you, you know, those types of storage technologies exist, but I wouldn't go so far as to say as most of them are cheap today. Certainly, I, oh, I can't imagine no, cheap are. enough to... L- let, me no, I mean, example, let me give you please. one example. So in uh, Drake Landing community in Canada, it's a community that for seven years has been using seasonal heat storage in soil. They take solar in the, in the summertime uh, from rooftops and take it through a fluid. They go and heat the soil. The, the soil heats up to 80 degrees Celsius. It's insulated. Then they use that in the winter to power 80, 90% of the heating demand in the winter. So that's, that's about a dollar a kilowatt hour compared to $600 per kilowatt hour for batteries. 
Right, right. But it's, there's a big difference between talking about it in that specific location and trying to do something that is, again, 100% across the country. But yeah, I, I want to move Canada, on. Canada, because, I just want to make one last point. Is Canada is much more difficult than in the United States to do it because of it's, it gets so much colder. Right. So let's move on to the economic side of the equation because we can't not talk about that. And I want to uh, ask Eric a question. Um, can, I just, can I just ask Mark one qu- quick question? Which is, sure. Which is when we get a dip for instance, in the German data, down to essentially no power produced by wind and solar, what happens? Well, again, we, use, we would use, uh, there's some demand, you can use demand response plus existing solar. We had concentrated solar power plants. We'd size this concentrated solar power to store enough electricity. But, but I'm, telling you, I'm telling you, you get zero, you get zero solar and wind at any yeah, given but, moment, can, it can go down to zero. So then what do you do? Right, right. That's when, that's when you use hydroelectric power, and that's when you use pumped hydro. Right, but and that's hydro, when you use hydro can't provide 100% of the power German needs in a given moment. I would just, I'm just going to jump in here for a second and, and also add that the, if, you t- if you are adding a lot of concentrated solar power with storage, you don't need the sun to be out for that all to be working. But uh, let me move on here since we're short on time. Yeah, we've um, got about I, three I, minutes I, on this. Yep. So Eric um, – I think you you must agree that uh, you know you're talking about there being no subsidies for anything you want consumers to be able to choose. You even mentioned that you wanted whoever is building the distribution system to be able to decide. I mean that strikes me as slightly disingenuous because the uh, energy market, particularly the electricity market, is extraordinarily highly regulated, and the companies that build the distribution system are regulated monopolies, right? So it's not like you're you're just leaving this all up to consumer choice. There is a role that the government, especially via public utilities commissions, has to play in this. So how are you talking about sort of leaving this all up to the market to decide when at the end of the day, uh, most of the big decisions that are made, particularly in electricity, are made by regulators? Well, I'm certainly not saying that right now it is all up to the market. I mean, you, your, your points are correct. It's a highly regulated industry. Now, my position is that it shouldn't be, that there's no fundamental reason for this to be. And, you know, one expression of this you see all the time is that who knows how big a part nuclear would play if there weren't these onerous political forces arrayed against it. Um, so I'm not advocating that we perpetuate exactly the current system we have in the U.S. I'm just saying, ideally, like any other industry that involves huge amounts of cooperation between millions, hundreds of millions of people, uh, really the market is the only way that society has ever figured out to effectively deliver goods on that scale. Yeah, I mean, that... True or not, it strikes me as maybe even less likely that we completely remove regulation from the electricity market than going 100% renewables. But I, I think uh, another question I'd like to ask you and then we'll, well go well, back to Mark. One, one thing, I mean, does, does anyone really think if we were in a completely unregula- unregulated electricity market right now that wind and solar would have any notice, noticeably greater fraction in, uh, in the electrical grid? It's just that's not plausible. I mean, I think that's I mean, just as, as theoretical as the models that you're uh, well, well, not a fan this, of. Look at the at. even even the so-called subsidies that are supposed to go to fossil fuels, um, which I many of those things are not real subsidies; they're just depreciation. But even if you count those as as, as subsidies, look at uh, compare the so-called subsidies per kilo, kilowatt hour of uh, of actual energy production, and it just the the uh, the wind solar subsidies absolutely dwarf. 
um, whatever you could attribute to fossil fuels. Well, fossil fuels have a century of subsidies behind them. But I, I want to move on because we are short on time. I want to ask you one more question. Um, I, I just want to sort of posit a, a scenario here because it, it strikes me you don't necessarily – maybe you wouldn't disagree with the idea that if – uh, costs were to continue to fall or maybe even fall more precipitously for renewable energy technologies and for energy storage, that somewhere down the line, if those costs actually did in aggregate fall below uh, the cost of fossil fuels, that then you, you know, you'd be happy with the market reacting accordingly. And if we end up with 100% renewables, so be it. Is that right? Yeah. It, you it, you just don't think the cost will fall that fast. Correct. Right. That's and, right. But um, I guess my, my question is how you react to sort of then the precipitous decline, particularly in the cost of solar that we've seen over the past decade or so, certainly faster than anyone anticipated. Um, oh, yeah. There, there's no doubt that that's happened. And that's great. You know, there are a lot of places that have to be off the grid. The grid isn't even there yet. Uh, that, you know, solar could be a, a reasonable option compared to the other options, which are no energy. Um, the real question is, what happens when you try and scale wind and solar, which are currently now about 1% of world uh, energy production, when you scale them up, them up to something like the 80% in uh, Professor Jacobson's plan? I mean, the, the economics of the situation does, doesn't just change a little. The prices don't just jump a little. It's a nonlinear, massive cha- shock to the system. And we just have no experience with what the resource requirements, the economic resource requirements would be like when that happens. And it's not really reasonable to assume that everything just stays hunky-dory uh, in terms of the, the huge amount of materials that you need. All of the, um, you know, the, the, the heavy metals... Uh, the the cement, um, all of the, the the raw materials you need for wind and solar, which are quite massive. Hey, I'm failing as a timekeeper here because we're a couple minutes over, but it's hard not to let this continue. And I just want to follow up with one last question to Professor Jacobson, and then we'll go into closing statements. How do you account for the uh, sunk fossil fuel assets if this transition uh, takes place? So all the power plants and all the fossil fuel infrastructure that someone has to pay for. Well, first of all, our transition timeline is between now and 2050. So we'd hope to get about 80 to 85 percent conversion by 2030. So what's going to happen is, well, all new energy and all new transportation, heating, cooling, etc., hopefully soon by 2020 will be clean wind, water, solar. And so then we would re- gradually replace, as you retire existing plants, we'd replace them with clean energy as well. So a lot of those plants that are existing, especially vehicles that are like fossil fuel vehicles, they have a typical lifetime of 15 years, you know, they'll be out anyway by 15 years. And so you don't have to deal with those sunk costs. Now, there are some things that going up today, let's say gas and coal plants, that there would be sunk costs. So we'd have to suck, suck up these costs if we really want to do this conversion. So... Now it's time to end the show, and we're going to give each contestant four minutes to wrap up. This is your chance to address any issues in the conversation, any unclosed points. And, Mark, you get the first round of closing statements. You've got four minutes now. Okay. Well, well, I want to just first address a couple of points. Um, uh, my opponent mentioned that, uh, the, that fossil fuels are reducing the cost to society, and I disagree with this heavily. Um, fossil fuels and solid biofuels worldwide, as I mentioned in my opening statement, kill prematurely four to seven million people per year, and this is the World Health Organization finding this as well. And 
that cost is on the order of somewhere between three and seven percent of the GDP of the world is is sunk into air pollution health costs, and that translates in the United States that health plus the climate costs that are associated with fossil fuels are a subsidy uh, uh, on the amount of about five cents per kilowatt hour. So you know the levelized cost of energy in a wind water solar system in two thousand fifty, as I mentioned earlier, would be around ten and a half cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, direct cost and a fossil fuel system would be between 11 and 12, so 11 and a half cents. But you have to add on another five cents a kilowatt hour of health and climate costs. So it is, it will be more expensive. But right now it's already more expensive because if you look at the cost of wind and solar, wind is 3.7 cents per kilowatt hour unsubsidized and 2.2 cents per kilowatt hour subsidized in the United States right now. And it's the cheapest form of electric power in the U.S. Solar uh, is tied with natural gas for second at six to eight cents per kilowatt hour, and that's the direct cost. But when you add on the fossil fuel subsidy cost of just the health and climate subsidy of five cents, you see that natural gas is in coal and in oil and two uh, blow away the cost and are really causing a dead weight uh, cost to our society today. Uh, not accounting for all the subsidies that the fossil fuel industry gets directly from tax code and from direct subsidies. And wind and solar get a lot of subsidies as well. I don't want to say that. They don't. But, they, but the fact is that there is this 100-year lead-up of subsidies in the fossil fuel industry. Now, I do want to say that there are many benefits. There's really little downside to doing a large-scale conversion to wind, water, solar. Uh, not only would you eliminate air pollution and eliminate global warming emissions, which uh, have a big impact on costs and people's health worldwide, but you would stabilize energy prices and you would create jobs. We calculated that a conversion in the United States would create about, uh, about uh, 5 million construction jobs over between now and 2050. There were 40-year construction jobs and 2.5 million permanent operation jobs. So that's 7.5 million jobs compared with about 4 million jobs lost. So there's net gain in jobs over a 40-year period. You stabilize energy prices because the fuel cost of wind and solar is zero, whereas fossil fuels, you have to mine continuously, refine them, and transport them continuously during their lifetime. So as a result, they have gradually rising prices. And you can see this in the data already. If you take the 10 states in the United States with the highest fraction of their electricity from wind, uh, starting with Iowa and South Dakota at 30%, uh, those states, the cost of electricity in those states has declined about 1% in the last five years. All the other states have gone up 8%. Because, in fact, Hawaii went up about 17 cents uh, 17 cents per kilowatt hour uh, in, the, in, I guess in about the last 10 years because it's the, you have to transport all these fuels you know, across the ocean to an island. In some places like American Samoa, it's about 50 cents per kilowatt hour for electricity. Uh, so you stabilize energy prices, you eliminate, uh, you el you eliminate air pollution deaths and uh, climate-related problems, and you grow jobs. And so it's really not a technical or economic limitation to doing this conversion. It's really a social and political uh, roadblock that's going on. There are a lot of people who don't have information about what can be done. And, you know, and maybe that's partly our fault there where we don't explain what's possible clearly enough. And you know, when you're putting out a roadmap and you actually can show something theoretically, that's something for people to shoot for. But when people who don't do, develop these roadmaps road – they look at them and they just want to shoot them down. You know, usually it's because they have they like what what the existing infrastructure, and they're just afraid of making change. All right, but, that, that I'm going to have to cut you off there. And since Mark started us off, Eric, you get the last four minutes of this debate, and it's all yours, sir. 
All right. Uh, well, you know, there's a common thread in both the speculative uh, proposals for abandoning fossil fuels uh, and the vainly ambi uh, ambitious project of predicting climate 100 years into the future. First, the enormous complexity of the problem being taken up. Uh, and this is almost never forthrightly conveyed by the modelers. It's like they're selling plans for a self-sustaining Mars colony to be inhabited by the entire population of Germany, GDP $4 trillion, by the way, less than the global energy sector. Uh, you'd think they'd do a proof of concept first, like maybe send 10 Germans there for a month or something. How about a proof of concept for taking, uh, for taking over a $1 trillion chunk of the U.S. economy? Maybe try to get one small town 100% on the Jacobson proposal. Hasn't been done, or any similar proposal. As I got into, when we actually look at the real data, not models, not speculation, with many, many adjustable parameters, but real data, like in Germany, um, you know, who, who are, they, they started out in that direction. They wanted to try and go that way, and after $100 billion in subsidies, all we see is still a highly volatile solar and wind production that operates at maybe 30% of nominal capacity one day and then 3% another day. Without massive fossil fuel support, this would mean chronic blackout, uh, blackouts and literally the end of industrial civilization. Industry, not to mention home heaters, your refrigerator, your surgeon, cannot just take power whenever the wind happens to be blowing. Wind and solar never provided reliable baseload power ever anywhere. Uh, in fact, they're best classified as an imaginary form of energy, not a renewable form of energy. Uh, so are we doomed on account of CO2-linked climate catastrophe, which is the big elephant in the room here. It's the thing that's underlying this entire movement. Interestingly, again, the supposed evidence for this is not real data. It's all models that unequivocally failed to predict the last 15 years of zero global warming. The crucial thing I want to convey is, in both cases, the, the climate models and the, uh, the uh, intermittent energy proposals, no one should be surprised about these modeling failures. These are incredibly hard problems. When someone claims a solution, unless he makes some seriously detailed, diverse predictions, not just projections, but predictions that wind up panning out, that we can actually verify when the data comes in, only then do I really believe him. Otherwise, he's not just a little wrong, he's not just maybe off a bit, he's in the Mars colony realm, he's totally disconnected from reality. And you know, speaking of that realm, we hear from leaders of the Green Movement every day about new climate disasters, droughts, hurricanes, the North Pole is disappearing. So why don't we see a trace of any of this in the big picture stats on human well-being around the globe? Lifespans, food consumption, health, income, all rising, surging as fossil fuel usage surges. The reality is that with the dramatic increases in CO2 emissions uh, starting around 1940, we've warmed something like one degree Fahrenheit. Uh, well, we also warmed about one degree Fahrenheit from the late 1800s to 1940. There's no evidence that something abnormal and catastrophic is going on here. 30 the more bottom, seconds. The bottom line is that natural climate is always snowstorms and heat waves and malaria. Natural climate isn't safe for humans. But there is one energy source that has an undeniable track record of making it safe for us, and that's fossil fuels. So that kid in a mud hut in Bangladesh with zero electricity, let's not ban his best chance at a decent existence, living past 40, maybe even a refrigerator. 
Let's not condescend to him with unsubstantiated solar wind fantasies to be published in a month in a paper that no one's ever seen. Uh, let's let him choose, and he will almost always choose coal, oil, and natural gas, but let him choose, and let everyone choose, and let's let the best prevail. Finally, I just want to say thanks to Shale and Stephen for organizing this debate, and a profound thanks to the fossil fuel industry for providing the electricity to transmit it to everyone who's listening. That is Eric Dennis, a senior fellow at the Center for Industrial Progress. Um, Eric, thanks very much for your time. We appreciate you coming on. Thank you. And uh, Mark Jacobson of Stanford University, we appreciate your time as well. A very fascinating debate. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Pilot. I hope you enjoyed it. And a big thanks to Renesola for sponsoring the show. Uh, we're actually curious to know who you think won this debate. Feel free to comment below our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And if you have any additional commentary, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. We will be back next week with the Energy Gang, and we will catch you then. 